is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And they're some of our favorites. And our next story comes from a Colorado listener. Let's take a listen. My name is Patty Kingsbaker, and I grew up in Miami. My dad was the boxing coach for the University of Miami. and uh, But they discontinued boxing in 1954, I believe. But at the time, I mean, he had two jobs. He worked for the Coral Gables Fire Department, and he was the boxing coach for the University of Miami. So when they discontinued boxing, he started refereeing. And uh, so as when I was growing up, I'm not sure how old I was when he started taking me to the fights, but I feel like I was at least seven. So every Friday night, I was over on Miami Beach with my dad and going to the fights. So I grew up like knowing all the boxers and in growing up in that world. I mean, I just loved boxing. So we found out that the Johansson Patterson heavyweight championship fight was going to be in Miami. And of course, you know, I was like, my dad's going to referee, you know, but they really, they don't find out who's going to referee a fight until like five minutes before the fight. They come over and get tagged you know, to do it. So long story short, my dad, I, there was one other referee that I knew was probably had enough experience or that it was between my dad and this other guy. Well, and his name was Cy Godfrey and my dad was Billy Regan. And, um, but Cy refereed a 10 rounder right before the main event. And so I knew, I knew that my dad was, so I hit it you know, I just was headed down towards to see my dad, you know, to go, yeah, you're going to get this fight. And I was behind the bleachers, but they were holding the crowd back. And all of a sudden, I looked up and like 10 feet in front of me is Frank Sinatra. And he's standing there with that, you know, he had his finger on his coat over his shoulder. He had the hat on. And I I was stopped in my tracks. I was like, oh, my God, that's Frank Sinatra. So I never made it down ringside to talk to my dad before the fight. But he did, in fact, referee the fight. And it was when Patterson regained the title from Johansson. And so when I found my dad after the fight, of course, the first thing I said to him wasn't, you got to referee the fight. It was like, Daddy, I saw Frank Sinatra, you know. So anyway, the story had kind of circulated through the fighters and Chris Dundee, who was the promoter at the time. And, you know, everybody gave me a hard time for not getting his autograph. And I was like, I was just scared. I didn't know what to do. So it was a few months later, I think, and I was at the fights with my dad. And Chris Dundee came up to me and he goes, all right, Frank's coming in tonight. And he's going to come in through that door over there, all right, at 9 o'clock. So you keep your eyes peeled and you go get your autograph this time. So sure enough. At 9 o'clock, that door opened, and in comes Frank. And I'm ready. And so I go hauling over there. They're taking him to a seat. But the thing was, is Chris forgot to tell security to let me through. So they're not letting me through. And again, can't get his autograph. So um, 
And I was just so disappointed because I felt like I had a clear path that night. Anyway, I went home and I ended up writing him a letter. And he was uh, performing over at the Fountain Blue at the time. And I wrote him a letter and I explained everything. I explained that my dad had refereed the championship fight, that I had been standing 10 feet, you know, with a clear path to him, but was scared. And that Chris had told me he was coming in the other night. And that, I, you know, I had my paper and pen ready, but then security wouldn't let me through. And I said, so now it looks like I'm never going to get your autograph. You know, if you could just send it to me that I would really appreciate it. So, and I mailed the letter off to Frank Sinatra at the Fountain Blue Hotel. So, it was a few days later, maybe, I, I don't know, but my dad called me chuckling and he said, I got the strangest phone call today. And he was working at the fire station at the time. And he said, this guy calls me and he goes, are you the Billy Regan that refereed the Hanson Patterson fight? And he said, yeah. He said, oh, God, thank God. Frank's been driving us nuts. Your daughter wrote him a letter. Somebody threw away the envelope. He doesn't have an address, and he wants to send her a picture. So my dad gave him the address, and I have my autographed picture from Frank Sinatra from that. And you've been listening to Patty Kingsbaker. And she has another story about Elvis Presley. And look, if you've got stories like it, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Brushes with greatness or a celebrity or a star you really love or care about. Uh, tell us those stories. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And I could just picture it. I mean, and Frank was always working on that image no matter where he walked. That coat was over his back, just like on so many of his records. And that hat, that signature hat was always there. And there was a day when he played little places like the Fountain Blue. By the way, that hotel is still there, and it still has top-line entertainment. And if you want to get a taste of the old Miami, it's still there. And South Beach is still a great place to go and, and have some fun, listen to some great music, and enjoy the sun. Patty Kingsbaker's story, her story of her encounter, well, her almost encounter with Frank Sinatra, here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for Lindsay Marie and the Why Minutes. Why did you buy an Amtrak ticket? If you're like most people, you're probably thinking, what are you talking about? I've never ridden the Amtrak. I know I sure as heck haven't. But what if I told you, no, you really did buy a ticket. Someone swiped your card and charged it on your behalf. One charge is easy to miss, but these guys have been swiping your card since the 70s. Okay, okay, okay. Before you totally freak out, it's not your fault. It didn't show up on your statement. It showed up on your tax bill. You see, in 1970, our government decided to get in the business of business, and they created this Amtrak thing. Congress forces Amtrak to run routes that no one goes on, and they can't even figure out how to turn a profit on a $9.50 cheeseburger. They've been losing over a billion a year. For most businesses, that would mean they'd be bankrupt. But for Amtrak, the government is all too happy to help make us subsidize them. The Why Minutes, because why matters.
This is Our American Stories, and we've told the story of Abraham Lincoln's assassination, which you can find at OurAmericanStories.com. It's entitled The Man Who Watched Lincoln's Assassination. Ford Theater's reenactor Mike Robinson told the story through the eyes of A.C. Richards, the then Washington, D.C. superintendent of police. We're now going to look at the aftermath of Lincoln's assassination. Our storyteller is James Swanson, the author of Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer. Swanson begins by sharing with us how he came to write his New York Times bestseller. I really came to this story by chance. Uh, I was born in Chicago on Lincoln's birthday, February 12th. And when I was a a small boy, my parents began giving me Lincoln comic books, those old classics illustrated and and, uh, uh, crayon books about Lincoln and the Civil War and trinkets from the Lincoln sites. And when I got a little older, books that I could actually read. Uh, My real interest, and, and I guess I'd say my obsession with this story, began when I was 10 years old. And that's when my grandmother, Elizabeth, who was a veteran of the old Chicago tabloid newspaper scene, uh, sadly now now long, long gone, gave me a framed engraving, which you might think is an unusual gift for a child. It it was an engraving of John Wilkes Booth's Derringer pistol, the one he had used to kill Abraham Lincoln. And framed with that engraving was part of a clipping from the Chicago Tribune from the morning of April 15, 1865, the morning that Lincoln died. He was shot Good Friday the night before and and lingered on until the morning. And I remember reading that vividly. And in those days, the headlines were not the broad, horizontal headline across the page, but rather the left column was devoted to headlines. And then there was a series of descending headlines in that left column. So it would begin with the breaking news, the president shot. And as each edition came out later in the day, more headlines would be added. The president shot is dying, not expected to live. Secretary of Seward stabbed to death in his bed. Of course, that was wrong. It was an early false report that Seward had died, that his sons had been murdered along with him. And I got to a midpoint in the story, and someone had taken a scissors and clipped it just when I was reading the line and ran out the back door and... And I I must have read that clipping a hundred times when I was a boy. And I remember saying to myself, I want to read the rest of this story. And that's how it began. I really wrote the book that I always wanted to read, but no one else had written, which might sound odd because there were over 15,000 books about Abraham Lincoln, probably even more. No one has ever done the complete bibliography. And of those 15,000 or so books, at least 1,000 are related somehow to his end of days. One would think with all the Lincoln studies out there, there'd be 100 books like this or, or 10, but there wasn't one, so that really gave me an incentive to do it. So I'd ask this question. Who was Abraham Lincoln on the morning of April 14, 1865, and who was John Wilkes Booth? It was probably the happiest day of Lincoln's life. It was certainly the happiest week. He had won the war. Lee had surrendered. Richmond fell on April 3rd. Lee surrendered on April 9th. Lincoln gave his last speech from the White House grounds the evening of April 11th. And on April 13th, Washington celebrated with the grand illumination of the city. Uh, Probably the most beautiful night in the history of Washington. Fireworks, flares, uh, lamps, illuminations of all kind, bonfires. 
One of the papers said that the Capitol Dome was so beautiful that it looked like a second moon had descended upon the earth as a sign of God's favor for the Union and for the victory. Uh, Lincoln met with his son that morning back from the war. He had been on Lee's staff. Then he met with his cabinet, and General Grant was a rare visitor for that meeting. And Lincoln told his assembled cabinet, I had that strange dream again last night. And Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy, said, well, what was that? And Lincoln said that he was the, at the head of a mysterious vessel moving towards a distant shore, and he was alone. And Lincoln said, whenever I've had that dream, and I've had it many times during this war, something of the utmost importance has happened. I'm convinced that something of major significance is about to happen. The meeting broke up, and Lincoln took his wife Mary on a carriage ride through the streets of Washington. He wanted to be alone with her and talk. During that ride, he had told her they had been very unhappy ever since the death of their son Willie in the White House in 1862. 600,000 dead, Union and Confederate. It was a crushing burden on Lincoln. And the Lincolns had grown apart during the war for many reasons. And he told Mary, we must be happy again. He told her that they might go back to Illinois and he could practice law when his second term ended in 1869. He wanted to go to the Pacific Ocean, he told her. He wanted to go to California, but he reminded her again, we must be happy again. She wrote shortly after this ride that I've never seen him so happy. In fact, I told him, you alarm me because you've not been this happy since just before the death of our son, Willie. That night, they decided to go to the play Our American Cousin to seek release from the exhilaration of victory. So that's who Lincoln was on that day. Uh, it was his week and his day of triumph. He had a rough start in office. But he learned how to command generals, how to build armies, how to articulate his goals to the American people. And he, he had done what he promised he would do. He won that war, and he destroyed slavery. So who was Booth that morning? 26 years old, one of the most popular actors in America, exceedingly handsome, athletic. Women and men would stop in the street to watch him as he passed. Generous, vain funny, uh, egomaniacal, politically motivated to be a lover of the South, of secession, a supporter of slavery. He once said, slavery is the best thing that ever happened to the black man. He was standing below the White House window on April 11th when Lincoln gave his last speech. And when Lincoln talked about giving blacks the right to vote, Booth turned to a Confederate and said, that's the last speech he'll ever give. Now we'll put him through. He didn't even need fame to gain access to Lincoln's office in the White House. Any one of us could have gone to the Lincoln White House, walked in the front door, approached the office suites, and tell one of his two or three male secretaries, I want to see the president. Often you'd be told, well, he's busy now. Sit on that bench over there. It might take a couple hours. You would be admitted to the presence of the sitting president without being searched, uh, without being identified. There were no methods of identifying people then. There were no driver's license, no photo IDs. And Lincoln would regularly place himself in the presence of strangers unknown to him. Booth could have walked in. Lincoln had seen Booth perform. Lincoln would have been happy to receive Booth. Lincoln loved reading Shakespeare to friends. He corresponded with other actors. Uh, Booth could have gained easy access to the White House and slaughtered Lincoln at his desk. Uh, we'll never know why. Certainly Booth was building himself up to a climax to strike against Lincoln. He was fantasizing about it. He began drinking more heavily. Maybe he wasn't ready psychologically to kill until later. Uh, 
I don't know why Booth didn't do it. Part of it, perhaps, maybe he wanted to kill Lincoln before an audience and really stage that performance. The theater was actually a great way to do it in escape because the theater audience was trapped in front of the orchestra. And when Booth got on stage, he was closer to the back escape route than the audience was. And in fact, only one man out of 1,500 people in the theater even stood up to pursue Booth. So it, w it was counterintuitively smart to kill him in the theater and have his horse waiting in the back. Uh, we'll never know why, but... It was a shocking lack of security. Lincoln eschewed security. The Secretary of War tried to have him uh, have more. A hundred death threats were found in Lincoln's desk after he was assassinated. He was almost assassinated in Baltimore on his way to Washington on the inaugural journey in 1861. It's almost as though, even in a civil war that killed 600,000 people, it was unimaginable that the president could be assassinated. No sitting president had ever before been attacked. And it, it was just beyond strangely, beyond people's imagination, I think, at the time. He had even stalked Lincoln at the second inaugural. He was within 50 feet of the president, looking down on him while he read that magnificent with malice toward none with charity for all speech. And getting drunk at a bar shortly after that, he pounded his fist on the table and said to a friend, what an excellent chance I had to kill the president on inauguration day. He was almost as close to me as you are now. And you've been listening to James Swanson, author of Manhunt, The 12-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer. And my goodness, what insight here, thinking about that day in Lincoln's life on April 15th and that day in John Wilkes Booth's life. For Lincoln, the greatest day of his life, followed by the greatest night of his life, seeing Washington illuminated as it was, the nation celebrating finally this war was over. Well, boy, it wasn't over for John Wilkes Booth, and he wanted to end it his way. And on a stage, I have no doubt, after having read this book, and I love this book, by the way, go to Amazon and pick it up. It is well worth reading. You won't put it down, actually. Uh, he wanted to do it in the theater, as a great actor would. He wanted to stage his final performance. Oh, and he did. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, the story of Lincoln's assassination and its aftermath, here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories and to James Swanson, author of Manhunt, the 12 day chase for Lincoln's killer. Let's pick up where we last left off. Booth needed a catalyst, though. And that came when he visited Ford's Theater midday to pick up his mail, and someone said, Lincoln is coming tonight. And that's the trigger that set off the imaginary clock counting down in Booth's mind. He knew he would have eight or nine hours to reassemble his conspirators. He had gathered them earlier, several months before, to kidnap Abraham Lincoln during the war and hold him hostage as a masterstroke to end the war. But that plan didn't work out. Booth wanted to do this because he hated Lincoln. Lincoln was really an American Caesar to John Wilkes Booth. He wanted to punish Lincoln the tyrant. He hoped to change history. And of course, 
he wanted eternal fame. He had it in his lifetime, but he wanted to be immortalized as a Southern and ultimately an American patriot. So he had just enough time to assemble his co-conspirators, get his guns, his supplies, his horses, send certain messages to people whose help he needed. And just as the Lincolns were riding to Ford's theater in their carriage with their theater guests, John Wilkes Booth called the final meeting of his conspirators at 8 p.m. at a hotel two blocks from Ford's theater. And that's the first moment he told them, we strike tonight, I shall kill Lincoln alone. He turned to another conspirator, Lewis Powell, an ex-Confederate soldier, said, you will go to the home of the Secretary of State, guided by David Harold, one of our other conspirators, and you will murder him in his bed. He's been in a terrible carriage accident, he's helpless, he can't move, go in and kill him. He told George Atzerodt, a German immigrant, you will go to the hotel of the Vice President, where he is unguarded, you will knock on his door, and you will kill him when he answers the door with a knife attack or pistol fire. They broke up the meeting, and that was the last time the, the group of conspirators ever met together again in full. You all know the rest of the story of, of what uh, Melville called that uh, bloody awful night. And I won't rehearse the, the facts of the assassination, except to say Booth performed it to the hilt. He really created a new kind of art form, which I've called in the book performance assassination. He wanted to escape. It wasn't a suicide mission, but he wanted to be seen and celebrated. When he crept to the president's box and shot Lincoln and jumped to the stage of Ford's theater, he wasn't wearing a disguise. He hadn't shaved his mustache. He did nothing to conceal himself. He turned to the audience and faced them and cried out the state motto of Virginia, Six Semper Tyrannus, that's always to tyrants. Then he cried out, the South is avenged. Then just as he left the stage, he really exulted to himself. Only a few people heard it. But just before he vanished from sight, he said, I have done it. And he went out the back and got on his horse. Uh, the next 12 days is really a, a, a wonderful story of mischances, of luck, and of irony. Uh, Booth was riding ahead of the news. He made his way out of Washington. And he was able to survive because he had planned the route in advance. He knew many of the people he would visit along the way, including the notorious Dr. Samuel Mudd, who certainly should have been executed for his involvement with the Booth plotters. He encountered Confederate women secret agents and their teenage daughters, young Confederate soldiers, 19 and 20 years old, who swore they would help him, former slave owners, even some ex-slaves who helped him and guide him. Uh, a wonderful man named Thomas Jones, who was a Confederate river agent who had ferried hundreds of people across the Potomac River and helped Booth and David Harold cross after hiding them in a pine thicket for uh, several days. Booth went the wrong way on the river. He lost two days of time. He injured his leg when he jumped from Ford's Theater and he had a wasted day at Dr. Mudd's. Uh, the pursuers, and there were several thousand of them, didn't know where Booth was. And they could only travel on horseback or by steamboat. So it's really an incredible story of essentially one man on a horse, or in a wagon, or in a rowboat, with one companion trying to outrun several thousand pursuers who had access to trains, steamboats, horses, and the telegraph. Uh, I do point out that if Booth had not been injured and had a few uh, pieces of bad luck, I think he could have escaped. He could have made it into the Deep South, where some counties had never seen a Union soldier. He could have made it into Mexico, which was his plan. And he might have even escaped to Europe, 
Uh, ultimately, I think he would have been caught there, like John Surratt, one of his conspirators who did flee to Canada, fled to Italy, joined the Pope's army, but was recognized two years later and brought back to America for trial. One thing that I enjoyed most about doing the book was meeting a number of incredible characters that I knew very little about at the beginning. And I'll just name a, a few of them and then tell you how I think Booth did get away with this. There's Fanny Seward, the wonderful daughter of Secretary of State Seward, who valiantly helped battle against the, the powerful assassin Lewis Powell, who stabbed her brothers, who stabbed the U.S. Army nurse, who almost stabbed her to death. And her first-hand recollections, which she recorded in her diary, are a vivid, wonderful, moving, horrifying, shocking account of the Seward attack. Uh, sadly, she died shortly after uh, the assassination. She would have been a wonderful writer. Another character, Laura Keene, the actress who was on stage and ran up to the box and cradled Lincoln's head in her lap and his blood stained her dress. Uh, I have quite a different take on Laura Keene. She's, she's portrayed quite heroically in all the other books on the Lincoln assassination, but I, I reveal some interesting things about her and I, I invite you to reconsider her actions and, and what she did and said. And one of my other favorite characters who added great insights into Booth's psychology his state of mind, his early years, is his sister, Asia Booth. She wrote a secret book about her brother, which was not published until years later, but she began writing it in the 1870s. And she did something, which I'm going to read a brief passage from now, that leads really to my final point about how Booth got away with this. She saw that her brother was going to become famous, and she tried to influence it in the way we remember him. And to her, Lincoln and her brother were paired tragic figures brought together mysteriously by history. And this is what she said. Her brother, and I'm quoting now, saved his country from a king, but he created for her a martyr. He set the stamp of greatness on an epoch of history and gave all he had to build this enduring monument to his foe. The South avenged the wrongs inflicted by the North. A life inexpressibly dear was sacrificed wildly for what its possessor deemed best. The life best beloved by the North was dashed madly out when most triumphant. Let the blood of both cement the indissoluble union of our country. Do you see what she's done? She's almost saying her brother is, is like a historically necessary figure like Judas. Um, there can be no Good Friday without Judas's betrayal. Somehow there can become no reunion of the country without the murder committed by her brother. Booth's body was returned to the family four years later. Uh, it had been buried secretly and parts removed as souvenirs. But Vice President Johnson succeeded to the presidency and he pardoned the surviving conspirators and he released from the grave those that had been executed. And you've been listening to James Swanson, the author of Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer. And I would urge you to go to Amazon and pick this book up or wherever you get your books from, whatever source that might be. Heck, you might even want to try a bookstore uh, and read a real book uh, for some of us who have that bias towards the actual book. But however you read, whatever your favorite methodology is, pick up the book. I promise you, you will not put it down. It's a heck of a story. And in this man's eyes, in John Wilkes Booth's eyes, he's the hero. And he was the hero in his own play on that stage and if it could have only gotten to Mexico he thought it would have continued 
And he thinks, in the end, that he did something great and good and virtuous. And that's what's so interesting about this story. And that's what's so interesting about the nature of man, the nature of sin. And this is why the book is so compelling. When we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable story. And again, the man who watched Lincoln's assassination is something we did too. Go to ouramericanstories.com. You'll get Lincoln's assassination through the eyes of the superintendent of D.C.'s police department at the time, played by one of the great reenactors in all of America, the Ford Theater's reenactor. He did that for us, especially here on Our American Stories. When we come back, more with James Swanson, the author of Manhunt, here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories and with the author James Swanson. The book Manhunt, the 12-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer is all about the aftermath of Lincoln's assassination. And by the way, all of our historical stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up. That's hillsdale.edu. They're free. And by the way, their Constitution 101 course, well, I learned more watching that than three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. I don't think I need to say more. That's how good it is. And now we return to James Swanson and the story of John Wilkes Booth and, to date, the biggest manhunt in American history. One of the most remarkable things I found in, in researching this book was what Asia Booth said about his grave. Uh, and it really made me aware of, of the memory of Booth and, and how we need to challenge it, I think. This is what she said, that no, no epitaph marks his grave and there's no stone. He's buried in the Booth family plot. And her book closes with this graveside elegy. But granting that he died in vain, he gave his all on earth, youth, beauty, manhood, a great human love, the certainty of excellence in his profession, a powerful brain, the strength of an athlete, health and great wealth for his cause. This man was noble in life. He periled his immortal soul and he was brave in death. Already his hidden remains are given Christian burial and strangers have piled his grave with flowers. So runs the world away. That was one of the most shocking things I'd read in the tens of thousands of pages that I read researching this book. And in a way, she's right. And here's how I think Booth has, has gotten away with it in American memory. We don't think of John Wilkes Booth the way we think of our other assassins, Lee Harvey Oswald, James Earl Ray, uh, cipher men of no accomplishment that, that we revile for what they've done. Booth has his own monument. It's called Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. All his artifacts are in the basement museum there. His diary, as if awaiting a final entry, is open for us to see. The pistol he used to kill Lincoln, which children, uh, over a million of them, visit a year and marvel at. The photos of his girlfriends in his pockets. Near Ford's Theater, there are street banners with his photograph blown up to massive size, directing tourists to Ford's Theater. I would, would pose this question. 
Would you go to Dallas, Texas to find Lee Harvey Oswald banners near the book depository? Would you go to Memphis and find James Earl Ray banners? Somehow, Booth has been drained by modern culture of his dangerousness, of his evil nature, the fact that he was a killer, a racist, he murdered our greatest president. And yet, we think of him in an almost antiquarian way. Uh, we think of him as the tragic young actor who threw away his life and, and his talent for a cause that was wrong. And I don't think we condemn him the way most Americans did in 1865. I think this is partly because Booth performed this so well. And he's almost tricked us into believing this isn't quite real. It, it's, a, it's a play. He performed the assassination. He performed his escape. He performed wonderfully an impromptu play on the twelfth night in the middle of the night when the soldiers surrounded him at the Garrett barn and engaged him in dialogue and repartee and set the barn on fire. Those were the, the footlights of the stage and he knew that was his last performance for the American theater. Um, a couple other examples of how I think Booth has, has gotten away with this. If you go to the new Abraham Lincoln Museum in Springfield, the theater is dressed to appear just as it did on the night of April 14, 1865. The state box is festooned with flags, and the framed engraving of George Washington that hangs from the front of the box is the actual one that witnessed Booth's leap to the stage. You can follow Booth's steps up the curving staircase, retrace his path to the box, enter the vestibule, and recreate his view of Lincoln's rocking chair. You can sit in the audience, and while listening to a National Park Service historian lecture on the assassination, you can stare up at the box and imagine Booth suspended momentarily in midair at the apex of his leap. John Wilkes Booth would have loved it. An entire museum, one of the most popular in America, devoted to his crime. I must have fame, he once exhorted himself, fame. In the main rotunda, figures of, of the great Frederick Douglass, of Grant and Sherman, of Tableau, of the entire Lincoln family. And who is looking at them? With hate-filled eyes, a life-size wax figure of John Wilkes Booth. In the gift shop, I found for sale to children toy Derringer pistols. It was unbelievable. And I would say again, would you find wax figures of, of Oswald at the Kennedy Library in Boston, at wax figures of James Earl Ray at the King Center in Atlanta, or standing outside the Lorraine Motel, or, or replicas of, of Oswald's Manlicher Kokano rifle for sale to our children? I think not. Uh, Booth was so avid that before he killed Lincoln the night of the 14th, he wrote his own op-ed to be published in the papers the next day so that the American people could read why he killed Lincoln. Uh, he worked hard on it. He sealed it in an envelope. He handed it to an actor friend and said, I may have to leave town rather quickly, and I might not be coming back. And if I don't come back, will you deliver this to the national intelligence or new editor uh, the next day? That man was so terrified that he had possession of that letter that he destroyed it. And it was never published. Later, he purported to reconstruct the letter. But I, I note in my book that I don't believe his reconstruction of the letter, because his attempt to reconstruct the letter is based on a memo that Booth wrote that was discovered in his sister's safe after the assassination. So I think this actor, John Matthews, made up the letter and didn't really remember it. He just sort of paraphrased a known Booth document. 
the one thing he did, the only thing he remembered about that letter, which I do believe, it, it was signed by Booth, and then he signed his co-conspirators' names. Matthew was at, and Matthews was adamant that the others signed it, but, but we don't know what the content was. But based on other Booth documents, we can guess. He was crushed, and he records this in his memo book during the escape. He was crushed that that op-ed was not published. Then, when he was hiding in that pine thicket for five days and four nights, being cared for by Thomas Jones, the Confederate agent who brought him food, Booth also implored him, bring me the newspapers. We're not certain what all the issues were, but based on the distribution of Confederate uh, mail, we know that the Confederates had access to certain northern papers pretty quickly. And if Booth had read any of them, he would have read how he had been damned for this loathsome act. And he was crushed to read his reviews. It, it really took the wind out of his sails while he was hiding in this pine thicket. He couldn't move. At one point, Union cavalry came within 200 yards of his hiding place. And he just had to sit there and wait and read what the North thought of him. It, it was his lowest point uh, in the escape when he saw that his own article had not been published and when he, when he read the newspaper editorials condemning him. With respect to what would have happened if Lincoln survived, it, it's the great unanswered question of the Lincoln assassination. Who knows? Maybe Lincoln's death made it easier for the Republicans to pass the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. I don't know. Maybe radical Republicans would have found Lincoln too lenient. After all, he just wanted them to go home to their farms. Lincoln didn't want to put any of the Confederate leadership on trial, not even Jefferson Davis himself. He didn't want to try any of the generals for treason. He wanted to have an easy peace for the South and bring the country together. That's why he asked the band at the White House to play Dixie a few days before he died. He did that as a symbol that it's our song now. It's not the Southern song. It's not the rebel song. It's an American song. Maybe we would have done to him what uh, the people of England did to the man, I'm convinced, saved them from Nazi invasion. Uh, when Churchill was no longer needed, out. Of course, Lincoln would have retained office. He couldn't have been ousted from the presidency. I'm convinced that somehow, and maybe this is just a hope of mine, that Lincoln's generosity, his magnificent insights into human nature and human psychology, uh, his wonderful ability to speak and write and communicate, would have somehow made post-war life better for the freed slaves. So in the end of the book, I want to make sure that you don't sympathize with John Wilkes Booth. There's a temptation to do it because he had a side that was charismatic, that was mesmerizing. And you spend 12 days with him in my book. Really, I put you in the saddle with him side by side so that you meet everyone he met along the way and experience everything he did. Uh, but Booth is not the hero of my book, certainly not. Uh, the hero of the book, and my hero, is Abraham Lincoln. And even though Lincoln leaves the scene in the first quarter of the book, I hope that you'll find that you find his memory and his presence and legacy to linger throughout the book. And that by the time you get to the end, when I finish with Booth, you'll agree with me that he's not a folk hero. He's not an antiquarian curiosity. He was a racist a murderer, and he killed one of the greatest of all Americans. And you've been listening to James Swanson, and what a story he tells. By all means, pick up Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer. There's so much more there. He just skims the surface here in this piece of storytelling. Great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. 
finding the story, bringing it to the year, editing up the piece. You just got to go back to the beginning of this story with Lincoln and his wife, Mary, in that carriage. We must be happy again. And they hadn't been happy or experienced any happiness since the loss of their boy. And my goodness, being the commander-in-chief in a war between the states, pitting brother against brother, parents against children, 600,000 dead, the equivalent of 6 million dead today, because at the time the nation, well, America had a mere 30 million people in it. So just imagine the catastrophic nature of 600,000 dead. A great story, a tragic story. James Swanson, Manhunt, the story of the chase for Lincoln's killer, here on Our American Story. our American stories and it's time for our American Dreamers series and that's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network and today our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of an oil man out of Midland, Texas named Jim Henry. In 1984 all the bankers and all the consultants were predicting that the price of oil was going to continue to go on up. It was about $30 a barrel and it was going to go up to $100 per barrel, except a consultant called Henry Grappi. And Grappi predicted that it was going to tank. And instead of trying to predict what the price would be, I said, what would happen if the price goes up? And I'd say, well, I'd be a lot richer. What if it goes down? Well, I'd be broke. So I better prepare for if it goes down. I don't want to be broke. I've got a saying in there that says, I'd rather be around than rich. <laughs> so I sold half of our oil, and then 1986, it went through the floor. Everybody was wrong except Henry Grappi. So we were able to withstand that. We had 30 people in our company. We had to let 15 go because we couldn't afford them. Now, the emotional toll was terrible. Firing good people that have helped our company a lot and then have to go out and try to find a job. There were no jobs in the oil industry, and I didn't think that was very ethical for us to do it, but it's kind of like throwing people out of a lifeboat to keep the lifeboat afloat. And we vowed from that day to this that we would never, ever let an employee go because we didn't have enough money. Then when we hired a consultant named Walter Scott, and he said something that revolutionized our company. He said, Jim, when you're doing well, pay your employees more. <laughs> I said, that, that makes sense. <laughs> so we started an incentive compensation program. And then when our company does well, our net worth increases. The employees get a quarter of that increase. So we have 75% of the increase to help continue to grow the company. So we made lots of millionaires, probably about 50, I guess. It's really rewarding. See, that I means some people in our accounting department have lake houses, so <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> we try to make sure that everybody's taken care of, not just the top people. So I asked Jim, what are their bonuses typically like? 
probably twice their salary. I mean, get their salary plus another. Uh, in the really good years, they'll get twice their salary in bonuses and people <coughs> pay off their house. Jim then turned to his team member and asked her this. Have you all paid up your house yet? She then nodded her head up and down. <laughs> My father was uh, born in Marion, Kentucky, and he in high school read a book called Soldiers of Fortune by Richard Harding Davis. And it was about mining engineers that went to South America. So he decided in high school that he's going to become a mining engineer and go to South America. So he actually did that. Uh, and he, nobody from Marion, Kentucky had ever gone to college. So that was something very new for the whole city. When he was getting ready to go to college, he worked all summer long for a farmer to pay his way through college. And at the end of the summer, the farmer said, I'm sorry, I don't have any money, I can't pay you. He got paid zero. A lot of people would have taken that, well, it's God's will that I not go to college. But he didn't. He very stubborn. So he started college broke, borrowed money from an uncle of his and uh, bought a paper route and threw papers all through college. He got his engineering degree. He went to Columbia, where I was born, in the jungles of Columbia, way up in the Andes. We were out dredging all the rivers for gold and platinum. We went swimming in a local pond that had a waterfall. Then we found panthers, but they had a den really close to where we were swimming. So that was interesting. It was an exciting place to be. Yeah, that's uh, one way to look at it. Jim could have died. I was five years old when we left to go back to the States. And we always went to church and liked the singing in the church. And, and I got to really like the preacher's daughters too. So. <laughs> <laughs> and he dated a few, which must have kept Jim on the straight and narrow. Uh, well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> I was a junior in high school and I had two years of paper. I made about $100 a month and saved most of it to go to college. I had about 130 people on my paper route rated in one to 10, and 10 being great, and one being terrible. And you had the great ones, and you had the terrible ones. It was, it was always a uh, spectrum. My, I guess my worst one was one guy that I collected by the week, and he owed me for five weeks, and he said, come back tomorrow, and I'll pay you. I came back tomorrow, and he had moved. So, <laughs> so that would be a one. It taught you a lot about people collecting for the paper. When I graduated from college, Bob Landenberger and I were working for a solar oil company and their primary investor went broke. So I was without a job and Bob Landenberger was out of job and we got together and we said, uh, why don't we start our own company? And we said, yeah, we could, that'd be, that'd be a good thing. So I went to Paula, my wife, and asked her, what do you think? She said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Let's do it. When we started, we had a plan that would go on a half a sheet of paper. One, become consultants, till we could become all operators, and two, to become an oil company where we had working interest. 
So we went out and had no money and no saving. And he had uh, six kids and I had two kids. And we had absolutely no money to start out with and no way to get any money. If we don't make money, we don't eat. That's burning rigid. That's a lot of pressure. But we kind of enjoyed it. It was kind of fun. Adventures. <laughs> and what a voice you're hearing. And it's not just a, well, it's just not a Midland, Texas voice. It's an American voice. And it's an American entrepreneur's voice. And so many of those voices sound the same. More of Jim Henry's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jim Henry. And, you know, we had talked about that voice of the American entrepreneur earlier and just how much it pained him to lay somebody off and how he vowed to never do that again. And by the way, I just love that line, I'd rather be around than be rich. And that's, uh, it's true. And so let's go back to West Texas and to the story of Jim Henry. We like to hit singles and doubles. We don't go for home runs, except when you get a slow, fat one right over the plate, knock it out of the park, and we did. We have always been drilling in the Sprayberry Formation. Sprayberry is the name of a certain level of rock and sand below the Earth's surface in the Permian Basin. For 50, 60 years or so, we drill down through the Wolf Camp Another level of rock formation, and yet another interesting choice in name. Which is below the spray break. And we would get very little oil out at all. You get a barrel or two out, and then it wouldn't produce any more. It was too tight. The ground was too tight. It wasn't permeable enough for a lot of oil to flow out of it. Even after what they call fracking it, shooting a mixture of water, sand, and chemicals down the well to break up the rock. It wasn't until George Mitchell came along and figured out how to frack these sands. Mitchell, a then 78-year-old entrepreneur, was just trying to keep his company alive. And his team had this crazy idea to try a different mixture that was mostly water and give it a special friction reducer that allows it to be pumped at a much higher pressure, what they decided to call slick water fracturing. Everyone thought it was crazy because the water would just bounce with crazy speed off the rock and shoot back up, flooding out the well. But it worked like crazy. The slick water seemed to go out in every direction in the rock, creating complex mini networks of cracks and enabling the gas to flow to the surface. It took 18 years for him to figure it out, but he's the one that did it. He needs to get more credit for that. In 2000, virtually no one knew what Mitchell's team was up to, and those that did still thought they were crazy. <laughs> but an unknown guy named Dennis Phelps was also open to trying 
anything. He had talked to George Mitchell, and he knew the Mitchell technique. Phelps was working for an energy company called Arco and was just starting to have some success with slick water experiments in the Wolfberry, the combined nickname for the Sprayberry and Wolf Camp formations, until he was told to stop. In about 2000, Arco sold out to BP, and BP decided they didn't want to do the Wolfberry which led to Dennis Phelps deciding to take an early retirement package. Disheartened, he moved across the state to East Texas and hoped to start a consulting business. A year into it, it wasn't working out so well, and so he called a friend from his old church in Midland, Dennis Johnson, who just happened to be the president of Henry Petroleum. Johnson decided to give Phelps $500 a day to consult on a rather humdrum project, but a year goes by and Henry Petroleum is offered the opportunity to drill on a former Arco lease only two to three miles from where Phelps had his experiments. And so they called him in. And we got Dennis Phelps to show us how he did it with Arco. And so we did it that way. And then we got better and better at it. We drilled it two wells, 16 miles apart. And they both turned out really good wells. Typically, when you're outlying the boundaries of an oil field, it's a lot smaller. One miler is the most, so we had a huge field. At 16 miles wide, Jim estimated that it had about 3 billion barrels of oil in it, which would have made it the largest discovery in the area in 50 years. And we thought that maybe the whole Midland Basin would be good for the Wolfberry. So we started branching out, drilling in different places, and it all turned out good. And so they wanted more land in the area to explore. And they had to do it all in secret so that their competitors wouldn't catch on. They weren't even allowed to tell their closest family and friends about their new endeavor. Geologists and engineers were told to keep maps and well logs locked in their desk drawers, only to be taken out when needed. And Jim's seven so-called landmen and seven freelancers went out, pouring over deed records in county courthouses, hunting down the names of the landowners in the area, and had to convince them to lease the mineral rights below their land. If there was something there, the landowner would get a nice piece of the action too, 25% of all oil and gas revenue from their land. And they got a lot of land. We acquired 330,000 acres, leased it. A tremendous amount, that's most amount I've ever heard anybody leasing. That's about 20 square miles. And then we drilled on it. Nobody believed us. They couldn't believe that we were actually making really good wells. And plus, we put it in sprayberry fields. So people said, oh, Jim's just drilling sprayberry wells. They're not very good. They didn't know it was a, a new technique, a new way of doing it. We were making a lot of money, and they didn't know it. So for three years, we had it all to ourselves. Now, well, when I drilled two wells 16 miles apart, we discovered 
over a billion barrels of oil, which is a tremendous amount of oil. And I said it was going to be about three or four billion barrels of oil come out of this field. And I was wrong. It's about 30 or 40 billion barrels of oil that's going to come out of the field. And we had 10 rigs running at one time and 100 people. And we said, we don't like big. I didn't know the names of all the people in our company. So we decided to sell. So we did. We sold out to Concho and we started a foundation where we can give back to the city that gave us so much. The mission of the Henry Foundation is refreshing for how short, simple, and to the point it is. Focusing resources to change lives. That's it. It says it all. Let's see. Focusing resources to change lives. Five. I believe that you should talk in five words or less. And whenever I talk to the Lord, he's very direct and doesn't speak in very many words. But the idea is uh, stitching time saves nine. You put fences at the top of a cliff to prevent Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, campfires. Those people prevent boys and girls from going astray. And instead of paying for an ambulance, because ambulances are extremely expensive, you can save 10 lives at the top of the hill, and so you don't have to do all this ambulance at the bottom of the hill. Jim could have held on to his discovery for longer and potentially made more money from it, but the price of oil was at the high price of $145 a barrel, and he wanted to make sure that his employees would benefit from the fruits of a high sales price that this would generate. What ended up being 584 million dollars the top 20 probably all got over a million dollars each and the rest of them got to three or four times their yearly salary so we made a lot of people happy when <laughs> plus for jim working was never really about making money at least not in the way that you might think we weren't really interested in making a bunch of money but uh, I'll take that back. I was interested in making a bunch of money because the foundation can use the money. We started back over with 20 people and then got it going again and did very well in two more years, sold out again. Then from then, it was hard to get back in after that. And we finally got back in and now we're going very strong. We have about 50 people right now. What we're doing in the industry is is providing cheap fuel to heat homes and, and provide fuel for cars to run. We're making oil cheaper. It's now cheaper than it was for the last 20, 30 years. And when we come back, you'll hear more about Jim Henry, this Texan's life, an American life, a classic American dreamer's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now for the final portion of oil man Jim Henry's remarkable American Dreamer story. Jim Henry is all about adventure. Love the, uh, the quote from Helen Keller, security is merely a superstition. It doesn't exist in nature. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So I had to ask him, what's your best adventures? Look behind you. (laughs) Behind me was a wall that was full of pictures of Jim's greatest adventures. One is me repelling off of the Wilco building, which is 22 stories. Uh, Another is me hang gliding uh, over in Cabo San Lucas, I think. And then every five years on my birthday, I jump out of a plane. I've done that when I was 75 and 80. Now I'm going to do it when I'm 85, which would be uh, about a year away. So, <laughs> The most uh, thrilling adventure was jumping off of a 140-foot bridge, bungee jumping off a 140-foot bridge. And uh, I have a fear of heights. So there I am standing on the edge of that, holding on to the back end and he, he said, you can let go now. <laughs> so I, that's it, if I'm going to do it. I, I also have a background, some in the theater. And in the theater, you learn how to get rid of your fears. And uh, you, you just go at it as hard as you possibly can go. So I dived as hard as I could. I, I jumped as hard as I could. And it turned out great. So. Jim got this sense of adventure from his old man. In South America, he would tell us these willy-nilly stories about a little dog called willy-nilly, and uh, and we'd lay in bed. It's always bedtime stories. And one day, Jim wasn't the one inside of the bed. He was the one on top of it doing the storytelling. I told willy-nilly stories to my kids, and I added a character. uh, Willy-nilly's a dog, and I added a rabbit thumper that is his best friend don't remember any of the stories. I made them up at the time and just make up a different one every time. Just ask them, what do they want to hear about? And so we'll make up a story about that. So then I started telling my stories to my grandkids. And Jim compared his storytelling craft to the songwriting craft of Buddy Holly, who had a live audience and he'd write his songs and the audience didn't like it, he would change it to make it better. Well, that's what I would do, too. If the, the kids started going to sleep, I would uh, <laughs> I'd, uh, make it more, more exciting. <laughs> I have one, uh, Justin, uh, he's, he's now 18, but uh, he'd go to sleep most every time, <laughs> regardless. <laughs> and my cousin said, where can I buy some of these willy-nilly stories? And I thought, well, maybe we should do something about that. So I started... Uh, tape recording the stories to a live audience. Now I'd tell a story based on what they wanted to hear. 175 stories. That Jim's recorded and has been able to turn into five books so far. He's got plenty more material to choose from for the next ones. And I've got this little feeling that Jim will be recording some more too. We hope to maybe get 20 books at least. We can make two books a year. So that'd be another 10 years. Uh, I won't be around probably, but. (laughs) 
I happen to love adventure stories. And I see every children's adventure show I can see. I think Tangles is the best that's come out in the last five years or so. But I just love them and I plagiarize wherever I possibly can. So <laughs> you go into a different world like uh, C.S. Lewis, he goes through a closet, a wardrobe, and then a train station maybe. And I, I go through it by using a tornado sometimes. I go through it by falling down a hole like you do in Alice in Wonderland. You can go down into a mine or a cave. I have grandsons uh, that are just addicted to their iPhone and iPad or whatever. They're, and that's what they do. They come home from school and they just sit down and play on that. Uh, and I think they need uh, more adventure. They need to get out and get more into it. And reading books is a good way to do it too. A good way to inspire your own adventures and a great way to learn character through the stories. We try to make them subtle, not too in-your-face sort of thing, never lying, never deceiving people, always trying to do the right thing. It gets across in the books, I think, I hope, but it's more of, a, of an attitude, kind of, than telling each part, don't lie, don't the Ten Commandments and everything like that. Just like how they're having fun doing something right. At the time of our interview, Jim Henry was 84 years old, and he's still working full days. I work from about nine to five or so, something like that. I'm working on willy-nilly books. I'm working on our company. What's our company going to be doing? One of the reasons that Jim can keep working like this is his health. He's very intentional about it, and he encourages his whole team to as well, paying for everyone's gym memberships and for his top executives to receive health examinations and guidance from our friends at the Cooper Clinic, whose founder, Ken Cooper, invented aerobics and catalyzed this little thing we now know well as jogging. Oh. Cooper has kept me on the track of uh, keeping up my exercise regime. I want to keep our team in good health. And they go to Cooper Clinic and they tell them, well, you've got to lose 30 pounds. So, <laughs> and they do. I probably average five hours a week, five days a week, uh, an hour each time. I do swimming a couple of times. I play tennis once. I do the Swin Aerodyne about a couple of times. And sometimes I think I may overdo it. I hope not, but uh, my wife says I overdo it. So I do strength training twice a week, which I forgot to mention in the other things. I do push-ups and chin-ups and pull-ups and crunches and, let's see, bridges and uh, uh, what's the other thing? And bridges and, uh, but uh, I do, wall sets uh, and do all of those and so I used to do 15 chin-ups now I can only do five uh, because sometime along the way I, I, I just didn't keep it up but uh, I'll be up to 10 pretty soon I think. <laughs> <laughs> Will Jim Henry ever stop working out or working? No, no. Uh, I probably will not be able to work uh, after a while. Uh, 
and then I'll have to do something. Uh, but uh, it's too much fun. And what does Jim's wife Paula think about all of her husband's activity? Well, she said, uh, I married you for better or for worse, but not for lunch. So, <laughs> yeah. so she's glad I go to, go to work. <laughs> And great job, as always, on that, Alex. And by the way, those stories that Jim Henry was talking about, we've got copies here at the studio, and they're so good. The artwork is beautiful. The stories, well, he's right. Jim is right. Kids need to have more adventures in their lives. WillyNillyStories.com will inspire that way of thinking. WillyNillyStories.com. And Jim's story reminds us of Well, the very first American Dreamers stories we had done here on Our American Stories, and that was the Home Depot story, the founding of this great American company. And that was Bernie Marcus, Ken Langone, and Arthur Blank, and all three of them. Well, the jobs they created, the tax base they created, the employees they took care of, the number of millionaires they created, and that's what Job Creators Network is all about, helping push policies that help small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones. Jim Henry's story, an American dreamer's story, a Texas story, here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories, and we love music on our show, and we love to tell stories of how songs came to be. And today, we have the story of Dolly Parton's song, I Will Always Love You. Take it away, Faith. I Will Always Love You won Dolly Parton Female Vocalist of the Year at the 1975 CMA Awards. In the following June of 1974, it was issued as the second single from Parton's 13th solo studio album. It was a great success, reaching number one twice on the Billboard Hot Country Songs. But how did the song come to be at all? Or, more importantly, why? Dolly Parton has been singing her whole life. At the age of 10, she was already performing professionally. But in 1967, the country sweetheart was invited to co-host Porter Wagner's TV show. This brought her popularity to new heights. They spent years together and their duets were extremely successful. Soon, Parton's talents began to outshine that of her mentor. Parton decided to part ways with Wagner. And this was how the song came to be written. This relatable, heartfelt ballad was not your average country love song. She wrote it as a farewell to her friend Porter Wagner. Dolly confessed through her song that she would always love him. Wagner didn't want Dolly to leave, but her song reduced him to tears.
That's great, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's got to be one of your prettiest songs well, that you've I ever written. Well, I appreciate that. And I imagine I can. I'll tell you what, you sang it just sort of like you mean it, too. Like well, I did didn't. sort of mean it. Did you? <laughs> yeah. It was beautiful and carried so much meaning that it caught someone else's attention. The king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley, wanted to sing it. Elvis loved the song. That was when he and Priscilla were having their problems, which I met her recently, and she told me that Elvis loved that song, and he had sung that to her on the day of their divorce. She, he said she, he kind of leaned in and sang a little bit of I Will Always Love You, and so she told me how much that he loved that song, because this was recently we were ter- doing some business. But during that time, it's no fault of Elvis, you know, he loved the song. But Tom Parker was in defense of Tom Parker, too, his manager. You know, he made some wise decisions evidently so he knew what he was doing but that was goes back to that other thing because Elvis was ready to record it I told my friends and people that he was recording it and they were in town to do the recording they had invited me down to the session and Colonel Tom Parker calls me the day before and says now you do know that Elvis is recording your song and you do know that Elvis don't record anything that he don't publish or at least get half the publishing on I said, really? And I said, I can't do that. This song's already been a hit with me, and this is in my publishing company, and obviously this is going to be one of my most important copyrights, and I can't give you half the publishing. Of course, that's stuff that I'm leaving for my family. And uh, he said, well, then we can't record the song, and I was just heartbroken. I said, well, I'm really sorry. But I can't do that. It seemed to be the thing to do. I, it hurt me because I was so disappointed that I was going to have to tell my friends Elvis didn't record it. And But I just knew that that was not right and that that was not... If it had been maybe... If I didn't have my own publishing company, had the song not already been a hit, it might have been different. But I couldn't give somebody half of a song that had already been number one. Since early on in her career, Parton has been proactive in protecting the publishing rights of her songs, which has earned her millions in royalties. So saying no to Elvis was a hard decision, but no matter how much he wanted to sing it, it was hers. And over time, someone else showed interest in singing the song. Whitney Houston wanted to sing it for the soundtrack of the 1992 film The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner, which was also her film debut. Kevin Costner, a lover of music, chose the song, I Will Always Love You. After giving Costner the permission to use the song, Parton forgot all about it until one day she turned on the radio. I like to wreck and kill myself. Seriously, I had, uh, I had, had word from uh, Kevin Costner when they were doing that. His secretary had called and said they, they wanted a copy of that song. And so I sent it. And that's the last I'd heard of it. And so I was driving from my office down on 16th Avenue on Music Row. I was driving to my house in Brentwood. And uh, that's when I was still driving by myself without (laughs) worrying about it. And uh, so I had the radio on as usual. And I I just heard this voice when she did the acapella, you know, like, if I should stay... And, I, and, and, you know, it's like a dog that hears its name or something. I thought, what is that? And it, didn't, it didn't register on me, what, it, but it was so familiar. And I thought, what is that? And then she kept saying, and it was still, I knew 
I knew it was something, but it, it didn't register. I thought, what is that? I know what that is. And then all of a sudden, she starts into that, and when she goes into the I will always love you part, honest to goodness, I almost wrecked. I had to pull over because I was afraid, because I was so caught up in that by then uh, that I had to pull over and listen to it. But it was the most overwhelming feeling that that little song of mine could be done so beautifully, so big, so overwhelming that it really almost just had a heart attack. I Will Always Love You brought these two women together who were from completely different backgrounds. Dolly from Tennessee and Whitney from New Jersey. They became inseparably connected from this song. Whitney's single was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for 14 weeks, making it one of the best-selling singles of all time. Not only that, but it holds the record for being the best-selling single by a woman in music history. Although disappointed that Elvis' version didn't work out, Parton was at peace. Everything seemed to work out for her, and she even said that when Whitney Houston's version came out, she had made enough money to buy Graceland. When Whitney recorded I was like, oh good, because now I own 100% of the publishing, 100% of the writing, and I did really well with that, but I didn't blame Elvis. I did, it was a decision I had to make at the time, and I'm glad I did. The way she did it, David Foster, who arranged and produced it, and Kevin Costner, who's the one that just, you know, wanted to do the song in, in the movie. But when I heard her sing it, because I'd always loved her singing anyway. I mean, what a voice she had. I mean, at that time, nobody could outsing her. But when I heard it, I, my heart just stopped. I just couldn't believe that my little song, my little simple song that was written straight from my heart, you know, about a a subject uh, that we all know and relate to one way or another, whether it's someone that's died or kids going off to school. People relate to that song in so many ways. But that's when I realized that the song was really important because and could be done anyway. It was, it was overwhelming. People say, well, that's Whitney's song. I said, that's fine. Give her the credit. I just want the cash. To make that such a worldwide hit mine would have never have done that but since then people have done it you know as instrumentals as duets and all of that so it's just one of those simple little songs that says nothing and yet everything on february 11 2012 whitney houston died dolly shares when she first got the news I was in L.A. I was out sick for about 12 days, and it just happened like it was happened on a Saturday, and I was not feeling great at all, so I was very emotional anyway, just, you know, how you feel when you ain't feeling great. And so I just, it, was a, it just overwhelmed me, just, just a fellow musician in general, or a fellow singer, but the fact that it was Whitney, because I always say on my show, I'll always love Whitney Houston, because she just took my song that I wrote about the Porter Wagner days and had a couple of hits on it myself, but then she took it all over the world, and just hearing that song played those, you know, that week that I was there, and they were playing it all the time behind everything, and it was, it was just overwhelming to me, and then when, when they buried her and they lifted that coffin up, and that song went into that, man, my heart just exploded and I just started to cry like you wouldn't believe it just hit me that just how connected we would always be and how that song had meant so much to both of us for different reasons and what it meant to the to the world and I have not performed that song since she passed away and I'm sure that it's going to have a whole different 
emotional feeling for me when I sing it for the first time. Just hours after her death, I Will Always Love You reached the top of the U.S. iTunes charts. It was Whitney's signature song. I Will Always Love You won Whitney the 1994 Grammy Award for Record of the Year and also Grammy Award for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. I Will Always Love You is a song that we can all relate to in one way or another. It began with Dolly Parton singing this song to her mentor who had done so much for her, and the song lives on through the voice of Whitney Houston. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith, and what a story. Whitney Houston, she grows up African-American in Newark, New Jersey, in a big city, and, well, Dolly Parton, the Smoky Mountains of rural Tennessee, and a white girl. And what a story about the two of them and how they came together. Also, what a story about business. My goodness, she had the good sense, Dolly, to not sell half to Elvis Presley of what she owned. My goodness, this is a story of America, right? Our ideas are protected through intellectual property rights. A great love story about one of the greatest love songs ever recorded. The story of I Will Always Love You, here on Our American Stories.